0: Hi everyone, welcome to episode six of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi-weekly guide to the world of tech, media, and everything in between. I'm your host, Aviva Rumani. Today I'm pleased to introduce the second part of Aria's interview with Nobel Prize-winning psychologist and author, Professor Daniel Kahneman. Arier and Professor Kahneman were the keynote at the Hebrew University Nexus Conference a few weeks ago in New York. Stay tuned to their incredibly insightful discussion around the human mind, what makes for an ideal advisor and the unreliability of human judgment. Jeremy Adam is back with a brand new quiz question. Listen to the end for the answer and all the details. Next, we'll hear from Liontree's Leslie Mallon, who will provide some visibility into the public markets with quick hits. We'll also feature this week an interview with Drone Racing League CEO, Nick Horbachevsky. And we'll conclude with Kindling, our segment dedicated to the trends we're exploring in Lion tree growth. Here we go. I'm pleased to introduce the second half of Aria's discussion with Professor Kahneman.
1: Thank you, Professor. Going to bias and obviously unconscious bias, which is more interesting to talk about, um, that comes in the form of emotion, framing, other issues. And one of the examples that I want to bring out was this loss aversion versus gain. Uh, whereas you know probabilistic theory would say if you have a chance to lock in a gain of, let's say, $500 or gamble for a gain of $1,000 or zero with a 50-50 probability, most people choose to lock in the gain. But if you create that same example in the loss scenario, everyone wants to take the gamble, even though the probability is exactly the same. And that's about emotion. And the second example is all about framing. So you give an example of if a doctor tells you, you have a 90% chance to survive a certain procedure, people would obviously want to do it. But if instead you heard you have a 10% chance of dying or not surviving the, the procedure, everyone says, I don't want to go near it. But it's the same probability. So, how did you uncover that bias, or what, what lessons can we learn from learning about these biases ahead of time?
2: Well, it, you know, it, it, loss aversion is an interesting uh, case in point because, <clears throat> as Amos and I like to to say, this was something our grandmothers knew. I mean, you know, who doesn't know that people pay more attention to losses than to gains? So, the the fact itself, the idea that you discover such a thing is, is funny. What, what we did do, uh, we brought some examples of it, we created some examples of it that were very compelling, that contradicted economic theory, and that were so clear and so compelling that they could not be ignored. And... And loss aversion has many manifestations. It has manifestations in that people hang on to things that they have. It explains or is part of the explanation for what it's called the status quo bias, which is a very good thing, by the way. It keeps us married. It keeps us in our, in our jobs. Uh, the, that the advantages of changing are uh, loom less large than the disadvantages. That's loss aversion. What we were doing in all these things was not so much making discoveries, but bringing an example that could not be ignored and sort of sharpening the comprehension of what the thing meant. Um, But, you know, we didn't invent framing. People have been using ways of, alternative ways of of describing uh, things, you know, forever. But, for example, in this example of the mortality frame, as it's called, or the survival frame, which is a study that actually Amos did with some people at the Harvard Medical School. In that example, actually, physicians use it both ways. And it's not clear that they're fully aware of what they're doing, and they're certainly not aware of the influence that this frame has on their decisions. And, And the influence can be quite considerable. So there is practical significance to those things, although, you know, in some sense, uh, some people knew them a long time ago.
1: But when you talk about cognitive bias, now that you're pointing out the flaws in certain examples, obviously, certainly uh, economic theory, can we prevent it by knowing about it ahead of time?
2: I would give two different answers to that question, one for individuals and one for organizations. I think for individuals, there is not all that much that you can do, except maybe uh, not trust ourselves quite as much as we normally do, so that if something really important comes around where a mistake could be really expensive, you want to slow down, and if possible, you want to get advice. And I even know who, who, who is your best advisor. I, have, I can give you advice about that. Your best advisor is somebody who likes you a lot, but doesn't care about your feelings. Because he is the person, the one who doesn't care about your feelings. I have one like that, Richard Thaler, the guru of, of behavioral economics. He, he likes me a lot, but he doesn't care about my feelings. And and he he will give me advice that I really resent, and that is really good for me. So that's the kind of that's the kind of advice. Uh, it could be in that direct conflict
1: want. here. Comment about the inertia of marriage.
2: Yeah, that sort of thing.
1: <laughs> well, how about minds that we view in our age as being very uncluttered, like Elon Musk or technology executives that create new projects out of out of nothing that we view as being. Um, Groundbreaking? Are they more pure in terms of their thought process or do they have the same biases?
2: Well, there is an enormous amount of, of luck, I think, in, in success. There are an enormous number of good ideas, most of them leading to nothing. Scientists have good ideas all the time, most of them are false. So, you know, there's a process that selects them. So, I tend to resist the idea, of course Elon Musk is exceptional. There are many other people who are exceptional. Elon Musk has also been, I'm quite sure, luckier than he knows he is. And uh, luck plays a big role in selecting those huge successes. And we tend, when we look at Elon Musk, to attribute his success entirely to his characteristics. But if you look back, there are many ways that he could have been selected out of the running. There are so many ways he could have failed. I mean, Google, the reason Google exists is that they didn't sell it for $750,000. They wanted to hang on for a million dollars. So at some point, at the discrete point, luck is involved everywhere. And, I, and exceptional people do exist with a, who are more creative than average. That doesn't guarantee success, it's a necessary condition. It's far from sufficient.
1: Is that also one of the flaws in relying on data to solve issues? Because data should uh, account for biases, I would think, right?
2: I don't, you know, I mean, I, I think the lesson of the psychology of judgment is that when a sufficient database exists, you want to trust it more than your judgment. In many cases, there is no sufficient database yet although the rate at which databases are being created is, is very striking. And at that rate, people are becoming displaced in terms of... Uh, but no, I think uh, everything that I have done leads one to, to hope for artificial intelligence, to hope and fear artificial intelligence.
1: There's a great line in the Michael Lewis book, uh, which is to say when Amos was asked whether or Amos was asked whether he's doing any work in the area of artificial intelligence, uh, given your work together, he said, I'm having way too much fun focusing on the areas of natural stupidity.
2: Uh, I, I can only report that last week, Amos Tusky's widow said he never said it. But, uh, but it's a good line anyway. LAUGHTER Except perhaps that we never thought that we studied stupidity, because since everything that we were studying was working on us, and we didn't, you know, we were arrogant Israelis. We didn't think we were stupid, so we didn't think that we were studying stupidity. So,
1: uh, fair, fair enough. Take us through now, uh, Donny, your work on uh, noise, which is a new area of focus for you. Uh, what does that mean, focusing on noise?
2: Well. Um, Today, I think, when people speak of error and of error of judgment, there is a word that comes to their mind, and the word is bias. You know, an error, which is the bias that caused that error. I think part of the responsibility for that is something that Amos and I bear because we made the term bias quite popular. But in fact, most errors of judgment are not due to biases. They are due to something else entirely that's called noise, and which is unexplained and unexplainable. And, and there is so much more of it than we know. So I'll give you just an example because this is on my mind uh, these days. So you can imagine a large insurance company. You don't have, I mean, you imagine it, but, uh, but uh, there is such an insurance company. And what I'm going to say probably applies to all insurance companies. You take a group of 50 underwriters. You give them the same description of risks. Those are work samples. The underwriters have written those problems on the basis of existing problems. You ask them to assign a dollar value, what is the premium that you would require for that risk? And then you compute a very simple statistic you take for every possible pair of underwriters, you, you take their two judgments, their two dollar values, you average those, you take the difference between them, you divide the difference by the average. And you see what percentage error is there. When you ask executives, and you know, ask yourself, it's a well-run company, what would you expect that number to be? And most people in a well-run company expect that number to be not much more than 10%. The answer is 50%. That's noise. And, and what is very striking about it is that the company never knew it had that problem. And I should add that it probably forgot it had that problem very, very quickly after I told them they had it. <laughs> so, and, and this is a very general issue. Wherever you look, if you look, you are going to find noise. And you are going to find that the sheer unreliability of human judgment dwarfs bias as a cause of error.
1: last question I have before I, uh, we adjourn our session here is, which book are you reading right now that's particularly influential in your life?
2: Well, uh, I finished it, but I haven't finished absorbing it. It's Homo Deus by Yuval Harari. I would, uh, I mean, my favorite book of recent years was Sapiens. And, and Homo Deus is not far behind it. It's, uh, it's an important book that people should read. It doesn't necessarily tell you <clears throat> where this world is going, but it certainly is telling you about the current trends and what might happen.
1: It certainly may not be the most uplifting in the future.
2: <laughs> no. Uh, but... Uh, As I was telling you earlier, I am by character a pessimist. My mother was a pessimist. So I I resonate to Yuval Harari's dark predictions. I share them.
1: Well, on that note, Professor Kahneman, thank you very much for being with us today.
2: (laughs) Uh.
0: Jeremy Adam has today's KinCast quiz question.
3: In 2016, there were 105 U.S. IPOs including Twilio, Line, and Acacia Communications. How many U.S. IPOs were there in 1996? A, 400, B, 560, C, 720, or D, 845?
0: Now let's check in with Leslie Mallon to get some insights on the public markets. Hi, this is
4: Leslie Mallon. I head Liontree's public markets business, and here are the TMT Quick Hits. (laughs) Thematically, the holy grail of omni-channel attribution may be getting at least a little closer to being a reality. There have been several interesting updates on this. Also, sports, sports, and more sports. The question is, is there too much? So starting on advertising, Google introduced attribution, which enables marketers to measure the impact of their marketing across all devices and all channels. It uses machine learning to assign weighted values to every touchpoint along a consumer's path to purchase. Not an easy task, and I'm sure concerns about bias to Google services will be raised, but it is an interesting development. The product is in beta and will be released more broadly later this year. This news follows Facebook announcing its automated insights analytics tool at its FA developer conference, which is designed to see how people's online interactions translate into in-store purchases. Lastly, this week, Snap acquired Placed, a company that helps advertisers track real-world purchases and store visits. It remains to be seen how accurate these tools will be. But two of the largest global online ad platforms are clearly focused on leveraging their machine learning technology to make deeper correlations between their troves of online data and the offline world in order to better monetize their ad platforms. Moving on to sports programming, it was interesting to see that on average, there were at least 10 live sporting events airing on national TV each day in 2016 per a Video Advertising Bureau report. There was a minimum of two games per day and a maximum of an unbelievable 76 games per day. This tallies to almost 11,000 national live sporting events aired annually. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a lot to me. In terms of viewing hours of sports-related programming, it is at over 33 billion annually. So basically, sports has a no-days-off programming calendar, but isn't there a point where we just have too much? Ratings for key sports leagues like the NFL took a hit last season. The election played a part, but we'll see how this season fares. Sports is the glue that has been holding the pay TV bundle together, but when do we have too much of a good thing? A couple other quick recent updates to mention. Data from Aptopia showed over 1 million people have downloaded the YouTube TV app since it officially launched in April. We don't know how many people are paying versus just on free trials, but that is a big number. Reportedly, Sling has 1.3 million subscribers. DTV Now and Sony View apparently have over 400,000 subscribers each. Investors will certainly be closely monitoring the disclosures during Q2 results, especially on the back of the weaker-than-expected Q1 video subscriber numbers from traditional pay TV. Lastly, T-Mobile keeps the heat on U.S. wireless with a promotion that allows for Verizon customers to switch to T-Mobile with their phones being paid off in full. That's another aggressive move. The environment remains very competitive. This brings us to our stat of the day, and it relates to online travel. According to a survey by SimilarWeb, Airbnb now draws more user traffic than any other hotel brand or meta-search site and shows no signs of slowing down. In Q1, the company drew 107 million visits to its site, which is up 31% year over year. Bookings.com drew 93 million visits, up 7% year over year, and Marriott International drew 63 million, down 8% year over year. With Airbnb also now more directly going after the business market and offering bookings for things like local tours, I suspect these strong traffic trends will continue. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next time with some more quick hits.
0: Lion Tree's Alex Michael sat down with Drone Racing League CEO Nick Horbachevsky to find out what this new sport is all about.
5: I'm excited to have Nick Horbachevsky on the show today. Nick is the founder and CEO of the Drone Racing League, the premier international drone racing circuit for elite pilots. DRL builds custom racing drones, which fly in excess of 85 miles an hour and fly over courses that include abandoned malls, NFL stadiums, and subway tunnels. Prior to DRL, Nick was the chief revenue officer of Tough Mudder, the largest mass participation running event series in the world. It's great to have you. What is Drone Racing League tapping into today?
6: Well, I think Drone Racing League was really interesting to me, mostly for that kernel of the idea of seeing it in this field and thinking, wow, this is really incredible. This is really something special. And having, there were, I always tell people that first experience, you know, it was home built drones. They were falling out of the sky. They were basically just going in a circle in a field. So it wasn't that it was, I saw it and was like, this is the most incredible thing I've seen. I just looked at it and There were moments of greatness. There were moments in there that made me feel like I was watching Star Wars in real life. And I think that that is enough to kind of build passion around it to get me excited but then you know more by accident than by design drone racing happens to fit nicely into a lot of trends that are going on right now the most obvious one is obviously the movement around drones drones are in the news every day people are excited about them everywhere i go and i talk about drone racing even if someone has never flown a drone before they know what it is they want to they want to know more about that technology i think the second trend is is esports and i would even make it a step up from pure esports as sort of the the creation of a generation of sort of technical or video game-based heroes, that there are people out there for whom their heroes are going to be more of an esport player than someone who plays football. I think the other trend that we've fallen nicely in the middle of is this sort of massive evolution that's going on in content, especially in sports content, that um, you know the number of channels out there that you can put content on is just diversifying. But with that diversification comes some challenges, and I think you see, especially the major racing sports, but really, frankly, every sport, being challenged a bit with ratings and saying, does my sport translate to a smaller screen or a digital screen? And drone racing, because the nature of it, it's relatively short races, it makes very short, compelling content. It also makes long-form, compelling content. But to be clear, it's not an eSport. Well it's funny we you know we we try to not come down hard on that question because you know it, there are a lot of people who look at drone racing and they call it the real life video game and they feel like it's a real life esport. You know when I when I first started working on this talking to people in the esport space they were talking to me about how excited they were because drone racing was very much like an esport. It, you know you use a controller, you're effectively looking at a screen and you can do it as a video game. We do that as a video game to learn how to race, but you can it Transcends the screen and suddenly becomes a real sport, real drones flying down a real hallway at 80 miles an hour. And so we like to say it sort of walks this blurry line between the digital and the real. And for some of our fans, we are a real-life esport. And for some of our fans, we're a form of very cool, futuristic, three-dimensional racing that has nothing to do with esports. And the nice thing is we don't we don't have to decide. We let the fans decide. right. Um, how would you define esports in one sentence? You know, I go with the mass market definition, which is that esports is competitive video gaming. Right. And, and we use that. So like we, yeah, as I say, we have a simulator. You can go to our website, you can download a simulator, teach you how to fly a racing ground. And last year with Bud Light, we did the Bud Light tryout for DRL, which was we had over 100,000 people download the game we had you know tryouts online where people t- played the game online. We took the top people from that. We brought them uh, here to New York to Webster Hall. We had 24 wow. pilots competing head- to-head in a video game and ra- elimination rounds, and one of them emerged the winner. And he is now flying in the 2017 circuit, flying real drones. Wow.
5: What is the format of Drone Racing League?
6: We're an international race circuit. So one of the easiest ways to think of this is we're sort of like Formula One, but with drones. We put on a global series of races featuring the best pilots in the world in interesting and exotic location. Different than most auto racing events is it's a whole series of those short races. So in the final rounds, the top six pilots from any event are racing seven times. And every time they're earning points. Do
5: fans actually attend this?
6: Yeah, so we do we have live attend or events This year our championship is in London. It's on June 13th at Alexandra Palace in London and we're selling a couple thousand tickets to that. So that'll be a sizable live audience. What's the
5: average ticket price for something like that?
6: So over there uh the the best seats in the house are about 40 pounds and then we have you know down to sort of 28 29 pounds for general admission. Not bad. Yeah. And you just announced a big title sponsor. So Allianz is our title sponsor of our race circuit. It's very much what Sprint used to be for NASCAR and what Monster is now. So you've gotten real
5: sponsors here clearly and I'm sure they're not the only one. But you've also, as you've mentioned, you have ESPN as well as some big investors. Maybe you can talk to a few of those in each camp and how they work with you.
6: Yeah, so you know, one of the things to understand about DRL is that we really do three things at the same time. At our core, we're a technology company. So we actually develop all the technology that's used in DRL events. To this day, half our team are engineers who only do How many fuel. company? How many in the company? We're about 25 people now. Okay. And so we need investors that can help support us with that. And so some of our investors there are really sort of classic technology-focused venture capital, people like Lux Capital who are incredibly active in the in the high-tech space, people like Lara Hippo Ventures, you know, the most active tech investors uh, in New York. But then in addition to being a tech company, we're a media company because one of the challenges of drone racing is it's really hard to film. Um, you're talking about a drone the size of a dinner plate going 80 miles an hour down the hallway of a building. How do you film that in a way that someone can follow the action? So we built our own media company. So we film all of our events, we edit all our content, we do all of our own broadcast stuff. So you see that on TV. That's DRL. So where can you see it right now? So it's on ESPN. Um, we're on Sky Sports in the UK. We're on ProSieben in Germany. We're on OSN in the Middle East. We're on TSN in Canada. We're actually we're in every country in North and South America on the ESPN affiliated channel. We have media company investors. So that's people like MGM. Sky is an investor. Proceban is an investor. Hearst is an investor. And all of those entities help us navigate different elements of what it takes to build a successful media company around this content. But then on top of all of that, we're a sports league. So if right. you look at us from the outside, all you see is, you know, what are our relationship with the pilots, what are these sponsors we've got, our broadcast rights, the races we put on, what are our rules? How do you actually manage a sports entity? And so we need investors to support that. And that's where people like RSC Ventures come in. So RSC is Steve Ross's venture fund you know, that invests in all kinds of intersections of sports and technology. We have a very diverse set of investors. In a short
5: amount of time. In, really relative, yeah, in a
6: relatively, relatively short amount of time. I mean, it's been a, it's been a rocket ride for last So you mentioned
5: months. poker before. Yep. Is there betting?
6: So there, there will be betting. There's a lot of interest in betting on this sport. I think um, we, we see that evolving into the sport. We're being very careful about that. What's your crystal ball in terms of traditional and new sports? You know, it's a big landscape, so I I hate to generalize, but I think one thing you're definitely seeing is even the behemoth sports leagues are seeing some some challenges. And I think what you see those sports leagues starting to do is to wake up to the fact that they're going to have to be nimble. You know, you look at people like the NBA, who are really being very forward-looking about getting in early with esports. You know, the team owners are getting into esports. The league is talking about getting into esports, saying, how do we... Build an ecosystem that coexists. And you think that's smart? I think it's really smart. I, I fully support it. And I, I think these things will all coexist. I truly believe, and this is just my opinion from spending a lot of time in the space and talking to a ton of people and talking to a tiny fraction, but a representative fraction of the 30 million plus people that tuned into DRL last year. There's a generation of people for whom traditional stick and ball sports just aren't their thing. All right. But they will tune in and watch hours of esports because they associate with those people I say, those are people whose heroes. If you say who's your hero, they're not going to name a quarterback. They're going to say Elon Musk. All
5: right, let's transition for a second, and we're going to do quick hits.
6: Yeah. Best piece of advice you've ever gotten, whether it's business or otherwise? The best piece of advice I've gotten is that sports leagues are not companies or entities. They're ecosystems. And they sit in the middle of something, lots of pieces rotating around them, your fans, your broadcasters, your sponsors, your athletes. And it's all about keeping all those people in sort of a balanced orbit. And that's really what you have to focus on, as opposed to just trying to build this monolithic league, the way you'd build a a tech company. Right. All right. Favorite book? Uh, A book I've read recently that I loved was The Boys in the Boat. I was just, one. transfixed from the beginning to the end in terms of business books uh it's hard to get a copy of it this is a secret book if you can find it uh it's need called the link. it's called success it's written by Strauss zelnick of zelnick community capital he's got a book it is sort of an update on how to win friends and influence people and it's just it's the most practical advice book on setting up goals, achieving them, building a business, building a life around that that I've ever read.
5: Show your streaming now, Amazon, Netflix, or any of the above, whatever you call TV these days.
6: I'm a huge Leftovers fan on HBO. It's a little, it's, it's it's a little, little dark. dark. <laughs> it's a little dark. It's a little weird, but man, I just think it's so good. Another show I just discovered and just completely been watched Legion from FX. Oh, And finally... You
5: listen to podcasts?
6: I do listen to podcasts. I mean, there's the Live Tree podcast,
5: Cast. Only the Live Tree podcast. If you're not listening to that, what are you listening to?
6: So I listen to the BBC World Service podcast, Every Day on My Way to Work. Um, Very high I, new, I, yes. I love it. It's how I get my news. Uh, I listen to Planet Money all the time. Uh, the Also out of the BBC, 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy, incredibly short bites, really interesting Always been a huge this American Life fan. Uh, Listen to all those. I would say podcasts are pr- like probably the primary media I can see. So you're big Pure on
5: podcasts. Okay. Nick, thank you so much. Drone Racing League CEO and founder starts airing June 20th. June,
6: June 20th, 8 p.m. on ESPN. If you've never seen it before, check it out. I am excited
5: yeah. to see what to do with this whole thing. So thank you so much for joining us.
6: Yeah, thank you. <laughs>
0: So now let's check in with Jeremy to see if you got our quiz question correct. In 2016,
3: there were 105 U.S. IPOs, including Twilio, Line, and Acacia Communications. How many U.S. IPOs were there in 1996? A. 400, B. 560, C. 720, or D. 845? And the answer is D. 845. After a quiet IPO market in 2016, there have been over 55 IPOs priced and 79 IPOs filed this year, representing a 68% increase from the same date last year, as of June 5th. There have been 12 tech IPOs this year to date, including Snap, Cloudera, and MuleSoft. Among recent filers is Blue Apron, the meal kit delivery service which had 795 million in revenue in 2016 and filed on June 1st. Ready access to private capital and historically low interest rates spurring increased M&A are among the reasons cited for the slowdown in IPOs. In April, it was reported that Spotify will eschew an IPO in favor of a direct listing at a valuation of around 13 billion, which would save the company millions in underwriting fees and prevent its existing holders from having their stakes diluted.
0: Next up, Austin will deliver our latest episode of Kindling.
7: On the whole, millennials have significantly less spending power than previous generations, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. One major factor is the rising percentage of student debt. According to the Federal Reserve, the average student debt for 25-year-olds in the United States has doubled from about $10,000 in 2003 to about $20,000 in 2013. Now, couple this with the fact that many millennials have entered adulthood during the 2008 financial crisis, witnessing firsthand what significant debt and overspending can do to people and their families. So what does this mean? We millennials have a different set of priorities. For us, marriage and home ownership are not happening on traditional timelines. According to the Pew Research Center, the percent of people that are 18 to 31 who are married and living in a home they own themselves has dropped from 55% in 1968 to 25% in 2012. On the bright side, the majority of millennials have yet to reach peak home buying age, which is 25 to 45 years old since we are the largest cohort of all time in the United States, that should translate to a surge in home sales down the road. According to Trulia Research, 93% of 18 to 34-year-olds who do not currently own a home say they intend to in the future. And as you might expect, our approach to this major life milestone will also differ from the approach of our parents. A number of companies, Trulia, Zillow, Compass, Redfin, and many more are seeking to change the way typical home buying and selling occurs. Typical real estate agents don't optimize for price but rather optimize for a timely sale, reflecting the fact that for brokers, time is money, and incremental price increases mean more to the buyers and sellers than to the realtors themselves. And while traditional realtors use data as part of their process to generate local comps, this information is limited. A lot of it is based on the broker you are using and who they know in their network, while these newer digital competitors have significantly more data and case studies to leverage on behalf of buyers and sellers. And this information is indeed telling. Across the board, data from these digital companies has shown that you often get a much better price than first offered if you can wait. There is also a very high correlation between higher sale prices and the quality of photos and videos provided in a listing. It will be very interesting to see how the role, or even the need to have a realtor, will evolve as millennials move into their nesting phase. Thank you for listening to this week's Kindling.
0: I hope you enjoyed our session today. You can, of course, learn more about Professor Kahneman's work from the latest Michael Lewis book, The Undoing Project. If you missed part one of the Kahneman interview or any of our prior episodes, you can hear our show through the Kindred app and subscribe to it on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to your podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at KindredCast. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time.
6: Audiation.